God's grace, his mercy, and his peace are yours from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If your friend told you to jump off a bridge, would you do it? No. No. If all your friends jumped off a, a bridge, would you follow them? If all the world jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff too? I think those are phrases that parents use to teach in a wise, proverbial way, their kids a lesson that sometimes our friends and even people aren't the best people to follow or listen to. And so we say, would you jump off a bridge if your friends, if people, if anyone told you to or did it themselves? And of course, there's always that kid that says, yeah, I'll do it. Or they come back with quirky responses, trying to distract the parents saying, well, is it How high is a bridge? Is it a bridge over water? Is it a bridge over troubled water? Do I have a bungee cord? We might be confident in our answer and saying, oh, we'll follow someone off a bridge if they jump. But sometimes when we get to the edge of something, if we get to the edge of a bridge or edge of a cliff, our decision changes pretty quickly. So, for example... When I was younger, about 10 years old, we were in Grenada, and high schoolers came down to help with vacation Bible school, and what we would do is we'd take them around the the island and show them certain things, and we stopped at this waterfall called the Seven Sisters Waterfall. It was called Seven Sisters because it had seven consecutive waterfalls going down. It was beautiful, and each waterfall got a little bit bigger, and by the end, there's a waterfall probably about 30 feet high. A kid, I thought it was 50 feet high. And when you have teenagers willing to show off, the question comes up, who's going to jump off the waterfall? Right? And of course, someone went up first, and they jumped off, and they didn't break their legs. So everyone else went up, and they jumped in, and it was all fine. And so I thought, as a 10-year-old, this is how I get in good with the teenagers. I jump off that waterfall. And I was ready to be cool. So I climbed up the edge. I got there, and I looked down, and that 30-foot waterfall looked like it was 100 feet. I'm thinking, how can I ever jump off of this? I had confidence climbing up that waterfall, up to the side, until I got to that edge, and then I saw down, and my decision changed. Even though my sister, who was two years older than me, jumped off just before me, (laughs) I couldn't bring myself to jump off the waterfall. And so my attempts at being cool left me being shamed, crawling down the edge of that waterfall. There's a famous tightrope walker. I think his name is Charles Blondin. He's a French guy. He decided to tightrope walk over Niagara Falls, and so they set up the, the cord, and he walked over Niagara Falls, not just walking, but in front of him he had a wheelbarrow with potatoes. And he made it from one side to the other, And we got to the other side, he asked the crowd, you think I could carry a person in here? They all said, yes, you could carry a person. And he said, who's going to volunteer? And no one volunteered. They didn't trust that they could get in that wheelbarrow and go to the other side. They were afraid of doing it. So when you come right up to the edge of something, sometimes your decision changes pretty quickly. And maybe... You haven't stood at the edge of a cliff, of a waterfall, 
maybe you hadn't had the opportunity to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls, but certainly there are the proverbial edges and the proverbial cliffs that we all come up to that we reach. And our, our way there, we think we're going to do it. We're going to go over this cliff. We're going to go over this edge. We're going to take this next step. But when we get there, it's the hardest part of the whole thing. Looking at some of those big decisions, just typing in and searching the biggest decisions in people's lives, some of those are purchasing houses, buying cars, getting married. And people, they walk all the way, they journey so hard to get to that point, to the edge, and sometimes when you get there, that's the hardest step to take, to take the plunge, they say. To make a commitment to spending so much money on a house or a car or make the commitment of spending your life with your spouse for the rest of your life. And it's as if everything would change the moment you step over that edge. The moment you step over that edge for a house, you're paying lots of money. And if you try to go back, you're going to waste lots of money. Same for a car. Same for a marriage. If you go over that edge and say, nope, I want to go back. It's too late. Nothing will ever be the same. Reaching that proverbial edge oftentimes makes us doubt ourselves. It makes us turn back on promises. It makes us turn back on decisions, no matter how hard we work in the past. Well, we discovered last week that Jesus made a big promise, an outrageous promise, we called it. A promise that he saw this world and how wicked it had become and how broken it was. And he promised that he was going to fix the relationship between us and God. And he was going to be the one to do it. He he came to the the Greeks in our Bible passage for today. And he, he again reiterates that. He says, I'm going to be the one who solves the problem between us and God. And he says this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. There God, Jesus, uses the gardening uh, illustration picture of a seed dropping from a fruit from a tree and being buried in the ground, virtually dying, and growing into another tree. If you want more seeds, that's what has to happen. A seed can't just sit there by itself not buried in the ground, not dying, so to speak, and produce fruit. It has to be buried in the ground, it has to die, it has to grow into a tree, and then it'll continue to produce fruit and bear seeds. And you can see he's talking about himself. If Jesus were to come and were to never die, there would be no fruit. He had to go and die to produce fruits, eternal life, give other people salvation that they didn't have, and he was the one to do it, and he says, I am that seed, I must die for this to happen. He made that very big promise, and he calls us to follow us, or follow him, along with that promise. It's outrageous, it doesn't make sense to us, but he says, come follow me, as he says in these next verses, The man who loves his life will lose it, and the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. He's drawing 
all people to himself. He's drawing believers to himself to say, follow me because this is what's important for you. If you love your life, if you love it here, you're going to do things to make it good here. You're going to grab hold of things. You're going to find a good house. You're going to find a good car. You're going to find good people. And you're going to focus on those things so much to make your life good here. But if that's your focus, you must realize it's only a temporal focus. It's time limited. If you care so much about your life here, you're going to do everything to make it comfortable and nice here, but you're not focusing on the true important thing. If you have the true important thing, then everything else in this world is really meaningless for the sake of it. That's what he means by if you lose your life or hate your life here, if you see the sin that you have, if you see how sin has destroyed the world, then... You lose your life for my sake, you will have eternal life. Those who cling hold of God's promises, who follow Christ, he says, I have given you eternal life. He says, follow me. And not only does he say, follow me, he brings up to that proverbial cliff that he stands at. He says to us, Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus wasn't a robot. He wasn't just programmed to do this. He wasn't like, a clone that just has one mission and he does it without any feeling or emotion. But as he says, come follow me, he draws us all to stand at this cliff to see what's over on the other side and to see what he's going through. He says, my heart's troubled. Why? After all the work that he's done as our Savior, working up to this point, why is he so troubled? He's worked so hard. What's on the other side of this cliff, this, this step that he has to take? On the other side is the hardest part of Christ's life. On the other side of this step, this cliff, is physical pain that Jesus would have to endure. He would be taken and captured, taken from one court to the next, He would be beaten, a crown of thorns put on his head and pushed down. He would have to to carry his own cross to the spot where he would be crucified and executed. This next step was not easy. It wasn't just physical pain, emotional, uh, psychological burdens. Going from one place to another, seeing people spit on him and mock him, and people turn their backs on him who were following him, for, for all his ministry. Not just psychologically, but spiritually. On that cross, Jesus looked up to the Father in heaven and said, My God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his back on Christ. Because Christ carried the burden of our sins. We stand there at the edge of that cliff, 
and we see why he's troubled. And yet he asked that question. My heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. His decision to step forward was not just ingrained in him. It wasn't just that he had to do this. His decision to step forward was because he knew he came for this very thing. And if he didn't, then we would have no hope. We would have nothing. Because you and I couldn't take that step. We couldn't step over that cliff. Just, just look at our, our lives right now. The, any pain that comes to our lives, sometimes we, we, we do our best, as best we can, to get rid of it. And even when it's involving our faith and our belief, sometimes we avoid pain at all costs, even for the sake of our faith and our belief. And we wonder why we can't save ourselves. Because which one of us would endure what Christ endured? We wouldn't. Not only we wouldn't, we couldn't. We couldn't take that step over that proverbial cliff because we are sinners. We are selfish. We are self-focused. So as we stand there with Christ, we say, woe is me, a sinner. And yet Christ draws us to that point so he can show us the very thing that he did next. To step across it. He goes on saying, verse 32, But when I am lifted up from this earth, but I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus made a great promise. He said, I'm going to fix your relationship with God. And here, he again shows us that not only does he make great promises, he actually keeps his great promises. And in saying, follow me, that's, that's one of the hardest things that he calls us to do because how hard it is to follow Christ because he endures such pain and suffering and he calls us too to endure some of the same things. He says it's not going to be easy to follow me. It's, it's not going to be comfortable in your life to follow me because you're focused on what is eternal rather than what is temporary. He, he, he goes back and he reminds us again that this is the only way. I, I am the seed. If I don't die then there is no hope. That's the same thing we hear at Christmas when we talk about the, the, the root of Jesse, the stump of Jesse. He is the one sprout that comes out of it. If he did not sprout out of that, there would be no hope. And he shows us our hopelessness to show us just how much he cared and loved us and how much we need him. So he steps over that proverbial cliff to be beaten, to be crucified, to be murdered, and to die. 
But in seeing that, we see our king who keeps great promises. Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. God responded, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd was, who was there heard it and said it sounded like it thundered. What God says to Jesus there, he really says for all people. He says, I have glorified it, meaning everything that Jesus had done up to that point was good and pleasing to God. He obeyed his, God's commandments perfectly. He loved perfectly. He cared perfectly. So the Father said, I have glorified it. But then he says, I will glorify it again. That glorification came with Christ on the cross. That was God's greatest glory. Not, not a shining glory that, that's bright as a sun, but a glory that in that moment of Christ stepping over to death for our sins, we become children of God. We have salvation and forgiveness. We have eternal life. God has glorified Christ in the cross. Sometimes it takes a lot to get over that proverbial edge. But here we see Christ step right over it. Even as hard as it was, as troubled as he was, he stepped right over it for you and me. And so as we follow Christ, there are moments that are difficult for us to go forward, and yet we always cling to Christ because he has laid down the path. He has already stepped over the hardest, most difficult part of it to to save us from our sins and bring us salvation. But he's our king. And today we learn, not only does our king make great promises, our king keeps great promises. In Christ Jesus is done. Amen. Please stand. We continue by confessing our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed, printed for you on the bottom of page 5 in your bulletin. We confess our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.